Welcome to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, your tour guide on the journey to becoming a veterinarian. Listen along as we provide you with tips, tricks, and tales on applying to veterinary school. Welcome back to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino. A reminder to our audience that season three is recorded while social distancing out of the studio, so the audio may sound a little different. Today's guest is Dr. Heather Walden, who's an assistant professor in parasitology at the USCVM. Dr. Walden, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alex. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to have you because I feel like you can talk to our students about a lot of different things without a DVM degree because you don't have a DVM, you have a PhD, correct? Correct. I have a, a bachelor's in science, a master's in science, and a PhD. And that, but you still work at the vet school. You're in my building. You work with vet students. I assume you work with veterinarians. So I think it's great that students can find out you don't have to have a DVM to work in the veterinary field. Absolutely. And, um, you know, actually my PhD, I was trained um, at a a vet school. So Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, I trained there, um, took some classes with the vet students, ended up teaching some of those vet students and so you know you kind of you really get um put into that the veterinary culture talk walk me through step by step so where did you get your bachelor's degree so i'm from kentucky and so i got my bachelor's in science in biology at the university of kentucky thought i wanted to be a veterinarian and but i i still wanted to to see what else was out there and so i went and got master's in science and genetics at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. And um, actually, while I was there, you know, I, 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 I wasn't really into parasites at all. But when I was there, I had to take my last semester two elective courses to finish out my, my coursework for my master's. And one of the courses was entomology. The second course was parasitology. And, you know, until that point, I was um, preparing my vet school applications. I was doing, I was was checking all the boxes and and getting ready to do all that. And then I took those courses and it was a complete turnaround. I I didn't want to be a vet anymore, but I still wanted to work with animals. And, but I was just fascinated by these these organisms and so I started to look for PhD programs and I found one with um, Dr. Byron Blackburn at Auburn University and and, you know ended up at Florida. I um, give support and advice to veterinarians. Um, I work with veterinarians on a daily basis. I work with researchers. I work with government. Um, It's 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 amazing Um, you know, how everything just melts together. I feel like that's a common theme I hear from a lot of our guests, whether they're veterinarians or not, that they didn't find their true passion until right at the very end, when all of a sudden they took one class or they met one mentor. Parasitology is the study of parasites. Yes, it is. It's the study of parasites. And it looks like based on some of your background, are there certain parasitologists and maybe yourself that study certain parasites more than others based on their location? Or can you do a lot of like teleparasitology where you're getting samples from Ecuador or Belize? What does that, the location piece look like? So it, it's, it's 
across the board. So you definitely have parasitologists who study, some study one particular parasite, um, and then, you know, kind of across the gamut as far as that parasite goes. Um, and then you have parasitologists who, you know, are, study a wide variety. Um, you know, and, it, and it's hard to say, especially in the world we live now, where you can put something in the mail and just ship it very easily. Um, you know, the, what I've been fortunate enough to work with, um, you know, includes parasites from all over the world. And so I've been able to, you know, have things sent to me here in Florida, but I've also been able to travel. And so we've gone to, Af I've gone to Africa and we've um, studied parasites there. And I've worked with people in Africa who've sent stuff to me. Um, I've gone to the Galapagos and studied parasites there. Um, we studied parasites in Mexico. Um, you know, so there's um, different things. And then in the United States, you know, I've done collections for um, people looking at parasites in marine mammals, seals and sea lions, dolphins, um, different whales. And so along the Pacific coast, Alaska, Oregon, Washington, and so they'll send hundreds of samples. And then here in Florida, you know, we have plenty of parasites in Florida. It's like the parasite capital of the United States. We are off sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's tons of parasites that are coming into the state that we didn't know were in the state. We didn't know were in the country. Um, we're finding new hosts. I mean, so it's kind of a, across the board. What are the components of your job when you get a parasite? Are you identifying the parasite? Are you looking for changes in the parasite? Like they send you all these parasites. What are, what are they asking you to do with them? So it depends. So if I'm doing research, then I'm answering, answering the question. If I'm doing diagnostics, um, then I'm either looking through feces, blood, urine, vomitus for signs of parasitism, whether it's an egg coming out of a parasite, a larva, um, a cyst, or something like that. Or they send uh, the actual parasite. So if um, dogs or cats vomit something up or something's defecated um, during necropsy, if, then those get sent to me and then those are identified. Um, and we, we do a variety. So, uh, you know, I do, I'm cl a classical parasitologist. And so I'm going to do um, morphological identification. Um, and then I also work with um, some people here at UF. And then we like to take that morphological ID with that parasite and then back that up with PCR. And so we, we do that because there are, um, there are not a lot of sequences out there for all these parasites. And so when we have something, we know what it is, then we can um, um, you know, put that sequence out there for the rest of the world to compare it to and kind of build this kind of parasitology database. And what departments would you say you work with the most? Like, is it primary care? Do you work with oncology? Oh who, gosh. Who do you work with? It's all over the place. So primary care, farms and large animal, dermatology, internal medicine, marine mammals, um, shelter medicine. I mean, it's, it's, it's across the board. What would you say are the top three parasites we see the most in our general area? Um, for what animal? Ooh, big question. <laughs> the dog. 
but the, probably the, the top three would be heartworms, hookworms, so direflurry embitus for heartworms, hookworms, ancelostoma, um, and then let's see, another dog one, probably tapeworms, dipylenium caninum, so that's the tapeworm you get from fleas. And so those three are very, very common um, in dogs in Florida, unfortunately. We've talked about research a little bit. So I, I feel like research is, a, is an abstract, abstract topic for some students. So maybe what we could do to help them understand it a little bit more is could you walk us through a research paper that you've done and kind of like from start to finish, how did you guys decide to do the paper? What was the topic? What did you have to do to get the data? And then how did you publish it? Sure. Um, so one of the parasites that I um, am really interested in and have been doing um, work with probably for the past five years or so is um, a zoonotic parasite, a parasite that's not uh, necessarily, um, I guess, native to Florida or the United States. So that's Angiostrongylus cantonensis. So this is the rat lungworm. And, you know, a lot of research, you know, sometimes you plan it out. Um, you know, you, you have something in mind that you want to investigate and you, you kind of stepwise go through that. And then sometimes research projects just show up. And so this was one that just kind of showed up. Um, this was, it started off in the Zoom Ed Ward. And so Dr. Wellahan and his group over there, um, an orangutan was presented to the, the Zoom Ed Ward and she was very sick. She was from Miami and she was privately owned. You know, one of the first thoughts was, well, it could be rat lungworm because this particular parasite had been um, reported in the Miami Metro Zoo a few years earlier in a gibbon. They did an, a necropsy and they found um, some lesions in her brainstem. And working with the CDC, at that point we were able to get those um, they were larval parasites that they were finding in histological section. And so working with the CDC, we were able to get those ID'd as angiostrongylus larvae. So um, I actually asked the owners for permission to come down to their property because in order to get um, infected with this parasite, you have to ingest snails or slugs, some kind of mollusk. So they let me come on their property went down there, spent the afternoon. I collected as many snails as I could find because they said she liked to eat snails. Collected a lot of snails and it also goes through the rat, hence the name rat lungworm. So they had an outdoor kitchen and I collected a bunch of rat fecal pellets oh, from all around the kitchen. And so we spent the day down there doing that and then everything was brought to the lab. We had to, I worked with a malacologist. A malacologist is someone who studies snails. So there's someone at the Florida Museum, um, John Sipskinski. And so he works with me and he identified all the snails. We um, uh, unfortunately had to kill the snails and smash them up and see what was in them. And then I also did fecal analysis on the rat feces. And so we found the parasite. You know, that paper, we published that, that's, that paper, um, you know, because it was, we found a new species of snail that had not been described for this parasite, um, and then reporting it again in Miami. And then we also published the paper on the orangutan as a case report, and that went through and the CDC's um, Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal. 
um, with Dr. Wellhand and his resident. And so from that, just that little, you know, day of collection and that, um, those, uh, those things I was able to write a small grant and do a larger survey of the state. And so that I was able to involve, I think, an undergraduate and two, two different veterinary students on that project. Um, I had a resident pathologist on that project. Um, there were quite a few of us and we basically went to zoos, conservation centers, places all over the state collecting snails. We collected their dead rats that they didn't want anymore. We collected rat feces. I think it ended up being like um, just under 200 rats. Um, we collected, uh, I think over 1400 snails. And then over the course of uh, a year or more, I forget, it was all kind of a blur, um, to process all of that, because we had to do necropsies on all the rats, process all the feces. We had to digest all the snails, and the snails got digested with hydrochloric acid and pepsin, and so that wasn't a very pretty process. And so, you know, getting all those digested and then pulling out all the worms we found, identifying all the stuff, and then everything had to be verified by PCR. Um, so we had to have a molecular identification to go along with it because, you know, often that's what, um, you know, journals want. They, they want the, the, the both of it together. Um, it just makes it for a stronger argument. And so it took a while to do that. And then we were able to, to publish that larger, that larger paper. What were the findings from the big paper after traveling the state? It's everywhere. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, you know, from what that from that story, my only thought is research is so cool because you had one case happen or somebody calls you on the phone and they want to work on something and then you got to travel the whole state, you got to get students involved, which is mm -hmm. awesome. I'm sure they love that experience. Yeah. And then you guys got to find out even more about this parasite. So I think it's great for students to understand that research is can be fun and exciting and very very helpful and it's also, I think, a way to give back to the profession. So I, it's great when professionals take an interest in research because you're helping future professionals when they see this snail or they see this parasite, they're like, okay, this dog maybe ate this snail. So mm -hmm. they're just cool. So if we're talking about zoonotic diseases, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up COVID-19. <laughs> what are your, I don't know if you've had any involvement in this at all, but what are your thoughts on like when I say COVID and you think parasites, does anything click? Does anything happen there? What goes on in the conversations with other professionals? Well, I mean, you know, as far as whether or not COVID-19 is, is zoonotic, you know, if, if, it, if it is, it would not surprise me. Um, you know, there are countless, like I said, countless parasites, bacteria, viruses, um, you name it, that, um, can infect or infest um, a variety of different hosts, and 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 in those different hosts, they can um, they can cause the same disease, or they can cause different disease, or they can not cause disease at all. Um, and uh, you know, so um, I think as as humans, sometimes we live in a little bubble, and you know, we 
we think that some of these um, kind of outside things can't really affect us when you know they they really can um, so you know I know that they found um, COVID in what a few cats and uh, and things like that and so you know and then the you know the question to me was well did it go from human to cat or cat to human and then right was the disease that they saw in the cat the same as what they saw in the in the human you know and at least with parasites when parasites um get into um kind of an abnormal host or a host they're not supposed to be in um the the disease you see is often worse uh, you see that with parasites the parasite i was talking about the rat lungworm when it's in the rat it didn't really do anything uh-huh um it's in the pulmonary artery of the rat and they can have several in there and still be alive but when you get it into a human and if you get a lot of these larvae in a human um they end up inside the human and then they realize well it's not a rat and so then you start to see the disease associated with um, the parasite and it's it's neurologic and so you know you see that in a wide variety of, of different parasites when it gets into something else um, that's not supposed to be in then um, you see those effects yeah. So since this is a podcast, you know, people can't see me, but I'm making a lot of like freaked out faces because I'm just thinking about like the ramifications of what that means. If there's a parasite, you know how it behaves in one host. If it gets into another host, it could be worse. It could be different. What do you think do you, in the next five to 10 years, what do you think is going to happen with our planet and parasites? Do you think that climate change has an effect on parasites? Do you think you know, the changes of human life and how we do things, do those conversations ever come up? Um, yeah, they do. And, and I think that climate change absolutely has an effect on parasites. Um, you know, we've seen it in, in several, um, you know, parasites that were typically, I, I go back to the rat lungworm, the one that I've been talking about. So this one, um, it's traditionally a tropical parasite. Southeast Asia, um, and it uses mollusks or snails. Snails, you know, many species will estivate in the winter. They can't handle it when it's cold. They can't handle it when it's dry. And so, you know, we've kind of seen it, and, and, it, and it always seems like parasites will start in South Florida, mm. South Texas, and they move northward. Um, and, you know, we've seen that here. So in my survey, we found the most parasites in South Florida up through the Orlando area. Then there were a little, you know, a little bit in kind of Gainesville, you know, around the Jacksonville area, one report in the Panhandle. But I guarantee you in five years, as I would repeat that study, yes. it would be kind of moving up. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, it does go back to one health where how everything is playing a role. Climate change is affecting the weather. So every things move up faster, up the state, up the country. But then if those animals start to either pass away or change, that's going to affect the ecology of that area. And so we don't know how it's going to affect it at any given time. That's intense. That's intense. Yeah. I always like to ask professionals, what kind of personality do you think is, personality and characteristics is helpful for 
a parasitologist? A sense of humor. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you asked that because I know all types of parasitologists. So I know some that are very serious, um, some that don't do any gross parasitology at all. It's all molecular based. Um, you know, some who don't teach at all, who only do research. Um, and then I know some that have more of a job description like I do. Um, so they do some research, they do some diagnostics and they do some teaching. Um, you know, there are a lot of parasitologists that don't do any diagnostics. Um, and then, you know, and as far as personality, like I said, some are, are very, um, you know, they're, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of across the board. You know, you, I definitely know that are, are some that are very eccentric um, and some that have tattoos of parasites on them. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, some that if you looked at them, you would never in a million years think that they uh, liked to get their hands dirty and look at worms. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of across the board. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I think definitely having um, a uh, collaborative spirit because, you know, there are some parasitologists who work alone, but I think this is definitely a field where you, 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 you get more done and you have more fun if you are willing to collaborate with other parasitologists, with other, um, um, other people. If you're going to do something other than just complete molecular parasitology, you don't want to get grossed out too much because um, it, it can be pretty gross. Then yeah. you're looking at some nasty stuff. Yeah. Um, but you know, once you can, you can get past the, the grossness of it, they, they really are beautiful. What is advice for the students before they get into vet school from you? One would be not to take yourself so seriously and not to, not to put a ton of weight on that grade. Um, you know, and I have, I, I think that, you know, going into vet school with a, a kind of a spirit of, I'm going to learn as much as I can. I'm going to have a wonderful experience. Um, making time for yourself. Um, not letting go of that self-care is very, very important. What's your go-to self-care method? My go-to self-care method is that um, I do not check my email on the weekends. Nice. I took it off my phone. Yes. I love that. That might be one of my most favorite self-care tips I've heard in a while. I agree with Dr. Walden. Knowing when to separate work from home life, even though it might be scary and you have to get used to it a little bit, is a great, great benefit. What haven't I asked you that you would like to share with the podcast? I'm not trying to make 124 parasitologists, um, but we are a dying breed. And so if, if you are interested in... Um, you know, still being a veterinarian and you get into vet school and you like parasites, um, you know, think about 
as scary as four more years of school would be. Graduate school is completely different than that. So different. Night and day. Yes. Um, consider it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's getting that graduate degree on top of the DVM is not, not as scary as it sounds. Um, you know, and we definitely need more peristologists um, because, you know, a lot of the pillars in our, um, uh, you know, in, in our, uh, our group are retiring. And we definitely need more. You know, I, I think it would definitely be uh, worth a second look. There you go, students. Parasitology wants you to get pumped about parasites. I love that, you know, just getting the students' minds open to other options can really help my audience know that you're gonna get a job if you have a DVM degree, but you might get a more unique and better suited job for you if you get the DVM and a graduate degree later and potentially in parasitology. Right. Well, thanks Dr. Walden for being on the podcast. I really liked our chat about all these gross little things. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm Savlino and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>